You may be seated. As you find your seat, go ahead and grab a Bible, whether that's one in the, the pew back in front of you, if you brought your own, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are making our way through the book of 1 Peter, and we have finally, after many weeks, come to chapter 3. We're going to be reading in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. It is so great to be preaching this morning, to be back with you in that capacity. As I was away for a few weeks uh, doing a heavy load of doctoral seminars. And so I am very grateful that I'm not there anymore and that I'm here with you and have the opportunity to open God's word with you this morning. I am also very grateful that, for Mike and for the way that he preaches God's word. Every time he preaches, I just sense it in the incredible love that he has for God's word and the way that he has faithfully taken us through this section of First Peter that is very con- uh, uh, countercultural in nature. And if you think about it, really the book of 1 Peter as a whole is extremely countercultural. That's why Peter, when he looks at us who are Christians, he calls us exiles or outsiders. He knows that our allegiance, our love for Jesus is going to cause us to be different than the culture around us. And in chapter 2, what he's been telling us is that one of the key things that should set us apart from the culture is our posture Toward other people. Whereas the world seeks their own interests, whereas the world seeks to, to satisfy their own needs, their own wants, their own desires, he looks at Christians and he says, You are to be different. You are to have a posture of submission in relationship to other people. A posture that says, I'm going to deny myself and seek the best interest of others. He says it is countercultural, it is hard, and yet as Christians, that is our calling. Submission. It's a harsh word, a word that some of us struggle with. We don't know what to do with it. And yet he showed us how this plays out in many different avenues. Today, he's going to show us what submission looks like in the context of marriage. Now, I realized this morning, I think this is pretty timely when it comes to marriage, because if you're like our family, the holidays come around, the stress level goes up a bit, right? No, that's just the Blackwells. Okay, that's it. We're the only couple that may struggle with a bit more conflict in the holiday season. And so I hope this morning that at least Rachel and I then will listen to the God's word as, as it's given this morning. Let's read it together. First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's the word of God this morning. Now, earlier I told you how thankful I was for Mike's preaching 
One thing I'm not thankful for is that Mike was actually already supposed to have taught on this passage by the time I got back. And he uh, ended up taking a little bit longer through the other sections. And so he lovingly left that for me, and I appreciate that. I'm just kidding. Here at First SF, one of the key reasons that we choose to go verse by verse through books of the Bible and through sections of the Scripture is so that we cannot skip over passages that, upon first glance, may seem very outdated or difficult to understand. Passages like the one that I just read. We take 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 very seriously when it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What that means is that passages, even the ones that are difficult or hard or, or may seem outdated, are very important for us to understand and apply to our lives. Unfortunately, the problem with this text specifically is that there have been many different people throughout history who have taken this verse out of context, have, have tried to make it mean things that the Scriptures never intended it for a mean, things that, that go alongside their selfish agendas. Some have used these verses to try to place women in an inferior position to men. Some have used these verses to teach that women should just do what they are told. Let me just tell you from the very beginning this morning, that is not at all what this passage is about. Instead, this morning, I want us, as we begin to look at this text, I want to give you two very important lenses that you need to put on as you come to a text like this one. The first lens is very simply this. It is the overarching portrait of women painted by the scriptures. Because here's the thing. Over and over, what you're going to see is that the Bible does some unbelie- something unbelievably radical for the first century. In the first century, women in that culture had very little value. They had very few rights. There, there weren't the things that they have today. And so many of the people had, had an inferior picture of what a woman was and of what their dignity and of what their worth was. But what does the scripture do? Over and over, no matter what you're looking at, all the way from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, all the way to the end, what does it say? That men and women are equal in the eyes of God, right? We've seen this over and over. We talked about this in our series on gender earlier this year. Men and women are equal in value. They are equal of worth. They are equal in person and equal in dignity. That's what the scripture has said. One of the most startling pictures of this is Galatians 3, verse 27. It's going to be on the screen. I just want you to think about what this is saying. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want you to think about that statement for a moment. He says, in Jesus, there is no Jew nor Greek. Now, is he saying that there's no differences, that there are no ethnic differences? Of course not. What is he saying? He's saying that no race, no one particular ethnic background is superior over another. They are all equal at the foot of the cross. 
It's very important, I think, even for today to see that. He then says what? He says, there is neither slave nor free, which means with Jesus, there are no class distinctions. It doesn't matter, rich and poor, untouchable, the elite, white collar, blue collar. He says what? They're all equal at the foot of the cross. And then what does he say? There is no male nor female. Now, again, he's not saying that there are no differences between men and women. What is he saying? He's saying that in no way is one superior to the other. All are equal at the foot of the cross. Because why? Because he says they are co-heirs receiving the same eternal inheritance. It is very important that we understand this. You see, that may seem like old news to you, but in the first century, this would have been radical. To see what God says about women, he elevated the worth of women more than any other document in the first century. If we miss this, putting this lens on, we will misapply the passage that we have just read. The second lens we need to then put on is the of context. You have to remember that these words, wives, be subject to your own husbands, they don't stand alone, right? It's very easy, I think, in the scriptures to just find a verse like, and, and make it mean what we want it to by pulling out of its context and saying, well, the Bible says this without actually talking about what it says around it. Well, with this passage, what does it say? It says, likewise. That word is very important. Because here's what it means. When he's talking to wives and their submission to husband, what he's saying is, likewise, means that that is connected to everything else he has been saying in chapter 2. What has he been saying in chapter 2? Mike's done a great job of leading us through this picture that we as Christians are called, all of us, male and female, to submit our lives to others. Peter has been calling us over and over toward mutual submission, toward laying down our desires, toward self-denial for the best interests of others. Why? In order to demonstrate the gospel. In order to point people to Jesus who submitted his life for us. This is a very hard calling. But that's why Peter continually pushes us back to the picture of Jesus. He says this in chapter 2, verse 21. If you'll look back the chapter before this. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, of course, Peter there, when he talks about Jesus' sacrifice, his suffering, his submitting himself, he's talking about the cross. On the cross, Jesus submitted himself even to the point of death. But here's something I want you to think about this morning. Far too often, we just look at what Jesus did without asking the question, why? Why would Jesus submit? Why would he allow these evil governing authorities to do what they did? Why would he allow himself to be tortured, to be mocked, to be crucified on the cross, when at any moment he could have stopped the whole thing, right? He could have brought judgment on the people that were doing, but he didn't. He submitted. Why would Jesus submit? Well, the answer is pretty simple, but it's vital that we understand why Jesus submitted. If we are ever going to understand why we too should submit our lives to others. Jesus submitted because he knew there was a much bigger, greater, God-glorifying plan at work. 
Jesus submitted himself because he knew there was a greater God-glorifying plan that was bigger, but it required his submission to be accomplished. Now, of course, we know that plan was what? The salvation of the world. Our salvation. If Jesus had not submit himself to that, we would not be saved. We would still be left in our sin. But Jesus trusted the Father. He submitted his life so that that work could be accomplished. What does that mean for us? Friends, I want you to hear this. Every single time God calls us to submit to blank. We've seen a lot of things. Submit to the governing authorities. Submit to those who are treating you unjustly. Submit to your spouse. Every time God says, I want you to submit to blank, I can promise you it is not to subjugate you. It is not to make you inferior. It is always because he is trying to accomplish a much bigger God-glorifying plan. Our submission is part of God's plan. How does that happen? Well, he says in marriage specifically, he says our marriages actually point people to the gospel. You want to know what submission looks like in marriage and why we do it? It's because in doing so, we point people to Jesus. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a kind of parallel passage to this one. Where again, Paul, instead of Peter, he, he calls us toward mutual submission. But then he says these words. He says, your submission is going to look different for men and women in marriage. He says this, number verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What is he saying there? He's saying, follow the leadership of your husband. Come under the leadership of your husband. Encourage and support the leadership of your husband as you do so to the Lord. Then verse 25, what does he say to husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this picture of how we're to relate to one another. Why are we to relate in that way? Look at verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now the word it in that passage is talking about marriage. And this is what he is saying. He's saying that the ultimate purpose of Christian marriage is that it be a picture to the world of Jesus and the church. The ultimate purpose of of husbands and wives and how they interact with one another and how they treat one another, the ultimate purpose of that is to point people to the gospel. To what Jesus has done for the church, what the church does in relationship to Jesus. We are a living, breathing demonstration of that to the world. That's why I think so many people get off course when it comes to marriage because we think the primary purpose of marriage is to make me happy, right? I go into marriage because I think it will make me happier. The problem with that is you get into marriage and there are days that you realize I was happier before I was married, right? But that's what leads to divorce is you must be the problem. You're a hindrance to my happiness. And so we go into divorce, The Bible says that is not the purpose of marriage. Our marriages are to display the gospel. And one of the ways in which they do so is by wives lovingly coming under and supporting and encouraging the leadership of the home of their husbands. And by husbands sacrificially laying down their lives for the needs of their wives. For those of you who are wives in the room, 
Let me just start by saying this. When you love and support and follow the leadership of your husbands, you are demonstrating a picture of the gospel that has tremendous power. There's tremendous power when you treat your husbands in the way that this passage calls you to treat your husbands. You have to remember that that the majority of the women that he's directly addressing at this point in this passage is to women who are married to unbelievers. Now, you have to understand that would have been scandalous in that culture. In the first century, the wife was absolutely expected to serve the gods of her husband. But when Christianity broke through during this time, many of the women said, I need Jesus. They saw their need for Jesus. They saw their need for salvation. They became Christians. And that was a problem because their husbands were not on board. This would have brought great, a lack of reputation to their husbands. It would have been seen as rebellious on part of the women. And so Peter's looking at this situation where these husbands are left thinking, what has happened to my wife? She's serving this man named Jesus who died and people are saying was risen. What am I supposed to do with that? And so Peter addresses these wives specifically when he calls them to this. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's what he's saying. One of the primary ways an unbelieving husband will be won to the Lord is not with the witness of a wife's mouth, but with the witness of her life. Now, is he saying that these men don't need to hear the gospel, that they don't need to understand who Jesus is and what he had accomplished? Of course, Peter thinks that they need to hear the gospel. But Peter is reminding these women of a truth that we all know, that our conduct either reinforces our testimony or it kills it, right? It either reinforces the testimony of how we say we are serving Christ or it ruins it. So he says to these women, submit your lives within the context of your marriage in such a way that your husband cannot help but see Jesus in you. These husbands were worried about what it meant for their wives. And he's saying, show them that it doesn't mean something bad for you. It actually is this changed life that Jesus brings about is for even the husband's good. Now, what is this submission supposed to look like? It's a question we all want to know, right? What does it look like in daily life? Well, what's interesting is that Peter doesn't give us specific ways that this submission looks in every single home. He knows in different homes that's going to be played out in different ways, but he does give us the characteristics of what your actions as wives should look like in response to their husbands. We see the first one in verse verse 2. He says what? When they see your respectful and pure conduct. To those of you who are ladies and are married in the room, here's a question for you. Are you respectful in your relationship with your husband? If people saw the way that you talked about your husband, you spoke of your husband and the way that you treat your husband, would they say, man, that is a characteristic of respect? Here's another question for you this morning. Do you strive for your conduct toward your husbands to be pure? Which means this, absent of deceit, absent of selfishness, absent of sin. It's a very high calling for the wife. Many studies have shown that one of the key things that men desire in life, one of the things they crave is this idea of respect. This idea of being esteemed, of 
of, of, of not feeling like a failure, but of feeling that you've accomplished something. Now, if you read down further, that's what the example of Abraham and Sarah is getting at. He says Sarah was respectful in her relationship toward Abraham. Surely this would include, wives, how you speak about your husbands and how you speak to them, right? Uh, not long ago, I, I took two of our, we've got two girls, and I took them to this indoor playground in West Portal called Peekaboo Factory. It was pretty much me, our girls, they were playing, and then a huge group of moms that were sitting next to me. I, was, I think I was the only guy in the entire room. But I was sitting there, it is impossible to miss the topic of their conversation that day because they were all outdoing one another, and the topic was this. It was the failures of their husbands. <laughs> I would imagine you've all been part of that conversation or have heard that conversation. But here's the thing. I don't know whether it was accurate or not. Those may have been very accurate descriptions of their husbands, but here's the thing I can tell you as Christian wives. That is the opposite of what this passage is talking about and the way that you talk about your husband. You as wives are called to build your husbands up with your words instead of tearing them down for everything that they do wrong. Now, I fully realize that many times we as husbands are not deserving of that respect. But that's why Peter points wives not to us, but to Jesus, right? What does he say? Jesus submitted himself even when it was not deserved. And so he looks at these wives and he says, it's not about what your husband does or not, does not do. It's not about how deserving or how undeserving they are. It is about you and your heart. Does your heart reflect Christ to your husband? That's why he says in verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The most important thing you can do as a wife is to grow in imperishable beauty. That's what this is saying. It's not saying that braiding your hair or putting on makeup is wrong. It's saying those things you can do, but none of those things are going to lead your husband one step closer to Christ. He says, if you want to make a difference in your husband's life, put on godliness. Put on gentleness towards your husband. Put on a respectful attitude, one that encourages and supports your husband. Does not tear them down. I cannot say it enough. A life of godliness and gentleness and respect is a powerful tool in the hand of God. You cannot change your husbands. Bad news for you this morning. You can keep trying, but you cannot change your husbands. Only God can change your husbands. But what you can do is point them to Jesus over and over and over again in the way that you treat them. This is the calling of wives. Now, I realize that many of the women in our congregation, many of you are not married, right? You're single, or maybe some of you are widowed, some of you divorced. You may be wondering this morning, what does this mean for me? Well, it is important that you see that this is a specific call to wives in the way that they walk with their husbands in the covenant of marriage, okay? This is not a blanket call saying all women submit to all men. That is not what this passage says. Your role as a Christ follower, if you are not married, is not to submit to a man. Your role is to submit to Jesus Christ. Your role is to serve him, to treasure him, to walk with him. 
in such a way that you point people over and over to Jesus, over and over. That is your calling. But I would say this, if you do desire to get married, and you're in this room and you're wondering, is this guy the guy? Here's a question you need to ask. Is this a guy that willingly loves and follows and submits to Jesus? Because otherwise, you're going to have a hard time coming under his, his leadership in the home. It does not matter this morning. I know it's, it's hard. This culture pushes you. You've got to get married. You've got to get married. And so you see a guy, and he may have great job. He may have great financial situation, great teeth, great six-pack. I don't know what you're looking for. But I can tell you this. If he is not loving and submitting to Christ, I'm just telling you, run in the other direction. Thank you, Tasha. We've got one person that's with me this morning. I appreciate that. Now, some of you wives are going to say preach because now we're going to move on to husbands. Okay, let's move forward. Let's look together at verse 7. It says that word again. What does it say? Likewise. Which means what? It means men. You too are called to submit. That word likewise connects with everything he said in two. And he's been talking about this role of us submitting our lives to others. And he says, men, you too are called to submit. But your submission, because men and women are different, the roles in marriage are different, your submission is going to look different. What does it look like? Well, let's break it down. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Specifically, what this says in the original language, I like it even better. It says this. It says, live with your wives according to knowledge. That's very important. Because here's the thing. This is what this is saying. This is saying that if we are going to rightly be a picture of Christ in the way that we relate to our wives, we have to have some knowledge. There's some knowledge that we need to be operating from. What is that knowledge? Well, of course, first and foremost, that's a knowledge of God and his word. We will never be able to live out our calling as husbands in the, in the home if we are not intimately connected in a relationship with God. A daily growing of knowledge of who he is and what he's done and what he's called us to. If we do not see daily how Jesus has sacrificed himself and laid down his life for us, we will never be able to sacrificially lay our lives down for the needs of our wives, Right? So we need this knowledge, this ever-growing knowledge of God. But this passage goes on to say that we also need an ever-growing knowledge of our wives. That's really what this is getting at. Walk with knowledge, with a certain kind of knowledge of your wife. Do you realize this morning that if you are married and you're a husband today, you are not out of school? doesn't matter what you graduated with, what degree you have. You are not done with school because you are called to be a student of your wife. More than anyone else, you should have a knowledge of her desires and her goals and her dreams and her fears. You should have a knowledge of what makes her face light up and what most quickly brings her down. You need to know what her favorite foods are, right? You need to know how she receives love. That's an important one. How she actually receives love, not just how you want to give love, right? That's a totally different thing. I, I'll just give you an example of this. I could go all day saying, you know what? I want Rachel to know I love her this week, and so I'm going to send her a bouquet of flowers. That's going to be a very loving thing to do. Now, some of you who are wives would say, that's a great thing. I would love to receive flowers. Not my wife. I've learned from experience. Flowers aren't Rachel's key love language, okay? 
If I want my wife to know that, she, that I love her, that she is very loved, here's what I have to do. I have to go to Boba Guys, and I have to go get coffee, milk, tea with 50% sweetness level, and I need to bring it to her. That is how I show Rachel love. If that's not enough, I then need to invite her on a date to a five-star Yelp restaurant. That is what shows my wife love. I've learned that through experience because I had to study my wife. What actually brings her joy? Men in the room, do you operate with your wife? Do you interact with her in a way that is according to knowledge? Do you know what her deepest temptations are? Do you know the things that you need to be praying for her? The scriptures you need to be praying over her life. Do you operate with this knowledge? He says that if we're going to love one another like we're called to, we need to do this. Sometimes, husbands, one of the key things that we can do is try to look for the cues when your wife is trying to connect with you. I'm really bad at this. I'll just readily admit it. Rachel's right here, so she knows I can't lie, can't tell you I'm great at this. I'm not good at this. There are many times where I know, or I get this sense that Rachel wants to connect with me. She wants me to listen to her. She wants me to show her attention, but what do I do? Let me just finish this email, right? Husbands, the call upon our lives is to put down our stinking phones when the love of our lives is talking to us. To look her in the eyes, to listen to her. We need to live according to knowledge. But it doesn't stop there. What does he say? He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, before any of you women get angry at this, let me tell you what he means when he refers to women as the weaker vessel, okay? He is not in any way saying that women are less intelligent, uh, inferior, anything like that. That is not what he is saying. What Peter is pointing to in this passage is the historically backed reality that where ungodly power is exerted, women are oftentimes the victims of such power. In a culture that is dominated by sin, women are vulnerable. Throughout history, men have taken advantage of physical power to oppress women, right? To to sexually assault women. I mean, goodness, you look at the news just this last week. All these instances of of men sexually harassing, sexually assaulting women, the whole Me Too movement on social media, you can't look at that and say that, that this doesn't apply today. Women are vulnerable. In this century, in the first century, abuse and oppression were prevalent and many cases were considered acceptable in the confines of marriage. But here's what Peter says. He says, Christian men, you are to be different. You are to use your strength and whatever God has given you to serve and to honor your wives and the other women that God has placed in your sphere of influence. Where there are vulnerabilities or dangers that exist for women in this world, Christian men are to be the first ones to stand up and to defend that vulnerability. Whatever it is that you could take advantage of to get your own way, he says, instead, use that thing to serve and honor and love your wives. You say, Ryan, how do we do that? How do we honor our wives? Well, the first simple way is just how do you treat your wife? Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It has taken me many years of marriage to realize that one of the most simple things I can do to build up my marriage is to be kind to Rachel. It's not rocket science, right? To be kind, not to be harsh with her. 
That's what he's saying in this passage. Don't don't be harsh. Instead, honor them. Use your words in the same way that, that wives are to respect and esteem their husbands. We as husbands are to use our words to honor our wives, to build them up, to strengthen them, to encourage them. Ask this question, husbands. Do my words build up my wife, breathe life into her, or do they tear her down? I would also ask you this. What does your demeanor, the countenance of your face, say about your relationship to your wife? Even more than words, I know that I can hurt Rachel just by simply, she tells me something and I just go, I don't have to say anything or I can just roll my eyes. It happens, okay? I'm confessing outwardly. This kind of thing happens. And that brings hurt to my wife. That is not honoring of my wife. It is not treating her in the way that she should be treated as a co-heir, as a daughter of Christ. We have to be careful with this. We also honor our wives by meeting their needs. Does she need someone to listen to her? We become that listening ear. Does she need someone to take over the nighttime bed activities? You know, brushing teeth, getting the kids in bed, taking care of cleaning the house. Then we do it. Does she need that roach killed? We're the exterminator. We do whatever we're called to do to meet the needs of our wives. That's another way that we honor them. And let me just say this since we talked about submission early. It's interesting. Never in this passage does it say husbands demand submission from your wife. All that we're called to do is radically love and sacrifice ourselves for their needs. In doing so, I think all of our wives would agree, if we lay down our lives for them, they will gladly come and support our leadership in the home. We are called to do our part. So husbands in the room, how are you doing at this? How are you doing? Well, this passage tells us you can actually get an answer to that question pretty quickly. It says this, look at your prayer life. Look at the end there. It says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says, you want to know how well you are doing in your relationship with your wife? Look at the intimacy of your prayer life. Look at the intimacy of your connection with God. He says, if, if your relationship with your wife is out of whack, here's the thing. Your relationship with me is going to be out of whack. Now, that may seem odd, right? That, that somehow our relationship with a spouse would, would mess up our relationship with God. But, but think about this. Your wife is not only your wife. What is she? She's a co-heir of eternal promise. She is a daughter of the great king. She's God's child. If you're a dad, you'll totally get this. I have been blessed with two daughters, Allie and May, and both of my daughters are absolutely precious to me. I love my daughters with all of my heart. Now, how ridiculous would it be if if they grow up and some man comes around and wins the heart of one of my daughters and marries them, but in that marriage mistreats my daughter abuses my daughter, takes advantage of my daughter, but then at the same time wants to just always just hang out with me. It's delusional, right? Any picture of him being close to me is going to be totally delusional if that is how he is treating my daughter. Husbands, listen to this. God is so concerned with you living with his precious daughter in an understanding, honoring way that he will interrupt the closeness of his relationship with you if you do not fulfill that call. He will absolutely cut it off if you are not treating his daughter, your wife, as he has called you, laying down your life for hers. For those of you guys who are not married, 
Let me just say this. How you treat women absolutely will also be reflected in your relationship with God. For many guys, I realize that one of the hardest things guys face, one of the things that is most difficult to get out of is pornography. The objectifying of women for your selfish desires. Let me just say, if you think you can just live in pornography without repentance, without continued confession, without repenting and battling pornography in your life and think that your relationship with God is going to be all good, let me just tell you, that is not going to happen. He says, these are my daughters. These are women made in the image of me. What you do with that matters. Are you honoring, protecting? If you're not married, how are you practicing these things in relationship with your sisters in Christ? Today we're going to close. And I know this has been a hard message. It's been a hard message for me this week. But I have to ask this question. For those of you who are married, what's the climate of your marriage today? Are there any sincere apologies, requests for forgiveness that need to happen today? Is there a time this morning even where you need to just repent and confess some things before God? You have not been ministering and and pointing your spouse to Christ as you've been called to in the way that you treat him or her. I encourage you not to leave this place without repenting, without spending time, uh, even with your spouse, apologizing for that. Husbands, I'd encourage you to lead the way in that this morning. To those of you who are not married, I would ask this. In what ways are you practicing these same characteristics of honor and respect and sacrifice? I understand that it's going to look different than it would look in a covenant marriage. But how are you practicing submission in your life to others for the purpose of pointing them one step closer to Jesus? We are called to be living pictures of the gospel in the way that we relate to one another. My prayer is that our marriages and our relationships would be a living, breathing demonstration of who he is and what he has done for us.